1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: Hello, I'm James Rogers and this is the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. And in this episode, we're talking about the importance of remembrance. Because on Remembrance Day, we think of all those members of the armed forces who have fought and given their lives in the line of duty. At 11am, on the 11th day of the 11th month each year since 1918, we've halted our busy lives for just a brief few moments to stop and reflect and respect. But why do we do this? Why do we remember wars? By doing so, do we risk glorifying war? Or if we don't remember, are we destined to repeat those mistakes of the past? Well, to discuss this, I'm joined by Ash Alexander Cooper, OBE. During a 22-year career in the British military, Ash became one of the most operationally experienced officers of his generation. He not only spent seven years on active deployment, leading some of the world's most elite forces, but after his full-time active service, he spearheaded and helped a number of charities to ensure that military service and those who have served are not forgotten. So listen to the podcast And if you want to donate to one of Ash's excellent causes, then text TOMMY5 to 70460. Through this, you can donate £5 and it will go towards helping the most disadvantaged veterans get back into work. Text costs one standard message rate plus your donation, and you'll be opting in to hear more about the RBLI's work and fundraising via telephone and SMS. If you'd like to give £5 but don't want to receive marketing communication, you can text TOMMYNOINFO5 to 70460. Now here's the fantastic Ash Alexander-Cooper on why we remember. Hi Ash, thanks for coming on The World Wars. How are you doing today? Very good, thank you. Good. Where are you? I'm actually in Church Crookham
3: in Hampshire, in the south of England, on the site of the former home of the Gurkhas, actually. This used to be a Gurkha barracks, but it's now housing, and I live here now. you will hear more about that link later.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like the perfect setting for the topics that we're going to talk about today. Because, in the words of Bear Grills, that's someone who's nice to have a comment about you, you are one of the most experienced soldiers of your generation, and you've learned the lessons of resilience the hard way. And I suppose with Remembrance Day upon us, I can't think of anyone better to talk to than you about why we should remember wars in our society. So let's jump straight into that. Why is a nation's experience of war important to remember?
3: Well, for me, it's really twofold. And I sort of caveat everything I say that I'm not an expert historian like you or Dan. So I'm speaking very much as an enthusiastic amateur and as a veteran. But for me, it's about two things fundamentally, I think. Honour and respect, firstly. Remembrance allows us, at least as a nation, once a year, ideally more, to come together across all faiths, cultures and backgrounds, regardless of what those might be, to remember the service and sacrifice of those who've gone before to try and secure the lives and freedoms that we all enjoy today. And in many cases, that clearly came at considerable cost, both in blood and treasure, when we consider the world wars particularly. And then secondly, and almost more importantly, perhaps it's about education and learning. And I feel very strongly that unless we learn from not necessarily the mistakes of the past, but learn from the past, we may risk making the same mistakes again in the future. And that would be pretty unforgivable. And unless a nation is affected by conflict directly day to day, as clearly both of the world wars did, a nation's understanding of war is likely to be more limited. So I think remembrance is really important to remind us of those sacrifices and bring us together as a community to think about what we can do in the future and the hope that exists in that. And I think one thing that was written at the end of the First World War, which always sticks in my mind, it's known as the Kohima epitaph that I'm sure you're very familiar with. And although it's linked to Kohima, it was actually written by John Edmonds after World War One, And in a very understated way, I think it captures neatly what those who've served certainly that first war felt was that When you go home, tell them of us and say, for your tomorrow, we gave our today. And for me, that's always been very poignant.
2: That is a really interesting point, because when you think about the military and about war in somewhere like the United States... It is ever present. It is everywhere. It is thank you for your service. But when you come to the UK, especially in terms of warfare today, with it being conducted by remote control in terms of drone warfare or small special operations forces deployments, it's far less visible in our consciousness. But you're absolutely right when it comes to actually something as an institution that binds us it not only binds us socially the military that is but it also binds us in terms of regions of the uk i can't think of many other institutions that actually link england to wales to scotland and to northern ireland and of course our overseas territories as well so it's so important not only to remember what's important about the values of the uk but also about keeping the union together as well. Do you think it's for this reason, that when we think about war in the British consciousness, we dive back to the world wars? Is that why it's still so iconic?
3: Yeah, very possibly. It clearly affected everybody. If you were at home in a traditional role, you may well have found that that job ceased to exist because you had to be retasked to do something that was considered to be absolutely fundamental to the war effort. One of my own grandparents, actually, he tried to join up in the Second World War and was refused because he was a baker. And he lived on the Isle of Wight, providing bread to Portsmouth and Southampton, you know, big military naval ports, and was considered to be essential to the war effort by baking bread. And so he was only allowed to join the Home Guard to do his bit and serve, but his service came in other ways. So in those total wars, it was a community effort where every person in the country had a role to play. So I think that I guess it's the clues in the title, they are world wars, you know, they are very different from those other conflicts that we've seen since, thankfully, that haven't been quite as big or involved quite as much loss and tragedy on that scale. But it's the fact that it touched everybody, regardless of your class, your background, your religion, or any of those things, you know, we were all in it.
2: Well, like you say, from baking bread through to being a member of the Home Guard or on the front line, but where your grandfather was, being a member of the Home Guard must have been pretty tense, just thinking that you'd be one of the first places that would be invaded.
3: Yeah, there is a story. I I still haven't managed to establish the veracity, but he's reported, certainly in family tales, to have, when he was on duty one night, heard one of the first V-1 rockets fly over where he was positioned. And he, as the story goes, rang into his headquarters to say, it sounds like a flying motorbike has just gone over my position. And he was sent home because they thought he was drunk, but it was a two-stroke engine. It sounded like a putt-putt kind of motorbike as it flew over and was one of the first to hit the mainland. So they all did their bit in their own way
2: the baker's been on the whiskey again, there's flying motorbikes overhead. I I can imagine receiving that story down the wire and being a little bit sceptical. But I suppose if we look back and we remember these stories of the World War, and they are such an important part of the fabric of Britain, the United Kingdom, and of course, all countries that fought in the war, do we risk glorifying war?
3: Personally, I think there's a big difference between commemoration and celebration and glorifying things. I think We often celebrate acts of selfless heroism that we learn of in conflict, and I've certainly been hugely inspired by tales of courage from the past and people who've led incredibly bravely. And so I think we can celebrate those without being classified as glorifying war in itself. I think far from glorifying, actually, in the remembrance that we conduct generally, it's about commemoration and education. The poppy itself is about remembrance and hope for that better world and a hopefully enduring peaceful future. So I don't think there's a risk of glorifying. Clearly when Hollywood make movies, there will always be tales that are interesting to viewers that keep them entertained for an hour and a half. But in terms of the way we tell the stories and we've got so many incredible first-hand accounts from both of the wars and all the conflicts since from veterans and civilians alike outlining and articulating the horrors of those wars. So I think we have to learn from those eyewitness accounts really. If you listen to those or read those, it's hard to glorify what went on because it was so awful. I've got a very dear friend who used to run the Holocaust Museum in D.C. in America. And I know from having read many of the stories, you know, familiar with many of them. There's clearly many I still need to learn, as it were. But every time I visit, I'm shocked by just the scale of what went on just in that context of the Holocaust. And I think museums like that and historians that tell stories or bring stories to life of the horrors of war have a huge role to play in ensuring that we don't forget and we don't risk glorifying war because i think that would be wrong
2: yeah history is really the greatest teacher isn't it but this is the world wars podcast we're dedicated to that turbulent period in history as people hear me say every single week But by overwhelmingly looking at this particular period, do we risk forgetting other conflicts that have been so important to shaping the country?
3: Absolutely. I think in terms of other wars, it's absolutely fair to say that there are plenty of conflicts that have not only been given less airtime, but received less print. Personally, I am, although a little bit ashamed to admit it, but I'm far less familiar with campaigns like Suez or Korea or many others. And in just doing a little bit of research Not too long ago, I was a bit embarrassed to find how many wars involving the UK there have been since just the end of World War II that I'd never even heard of. And I think that's probably indicative of the focus that the world wars have had for the right reasons, because they were so totemic in our history, and the fabric of our society, even to today, what we fought for, to have those freedoms, etc. And I think another event that happened this year that reinforces this point about how easy it is for us to forget Some of the smaller or the less well-known wars is the 75th anniversary of Victory in Japan Day. The coverage that was given on television and radio and elsewhere about the Far East campaign and the Forgotten Army, its name rather makes the point it was the Forgotten Army because it was a part of the campaign that wasn't going well. And it wasn't written out of history, but it certainly wasn't highlighted. And there is a risk that a lot of very selfless acts from many hundreds of thousands or millions of people do risk being forgotten or not told in a way that perhaps they should.
2: I think I can see a project coming up here, Ash. I think we can start a Forgotten Wars podcast.
3: (laughs) Don't look at me. You're the expert here.
2: (laughs) Okay, let's try and rectify this because you are one of the most experienced elite soldiers of your generation. So perhaps you can give us some details. That's
3: what Bear said and Bear will do anything if you ask him nicely.
2: (laughs) Well, I've said it now as well. So that's two people. So it must be true. So perhaps you can tell us about your military background and just how important service was to you.
3: I'm very lucky to have had an incredibly fulfilling and extremely diverse career, perhaps more diverse than many get the opportunity to have, and for that I'm extremely grateful. I only planned to join for three years and have a quick adventure, then thought I would get a proper job, whatever a proper job is, and then found myself retiring in my 22nd year, having stayed on, clearly a lot longer than the three-year point. And I don't come from a military family per se. And I went to Sandhurst without really even knowing how many regiments there were. I was overwhelmed, really, by the choice of who one might be able to join and apply to. One grandfather is the baker. My other grandfather did actually serve in the Air Force. He was a Lancaster bomber navigator in 617 Squadron, which famously is the Dam Buster Squadron, although he joined just after the main operations that saw those dams that made the squadron so famous. But that's the main link that I have, I suppose, to service in the family. And I didn't really learn much about his life and service until quite late on, sadly, in his life. And he died of cancer in 2009. But we did talk a lot before he died about service and the operations he'd been on. And he gave me his St. Christopher before he died. And I actually wore that on my dog tags for every deployment that I went on since that day, figuring that, you know, they'd kept him safe. So I hoped it would do the same for me. But when I left Sandhurst, I was... Fortunate and thrilled to be selected to join the Royal Gurkha Rifles, and I'm sure many of your discerning listeners will know about their history, but for those who perhaps are less familiar, it's a part of the British Army that has been recruiting and working with soldiers from Nepal since 1815, and they have been involved in just about every operation that the UK has been involved in since that date, since 1815. And so joining a unit like that, one could not help to be inculcated in the history and the tales of Daring Do that exist within the regimental archives. A huge amount of pressure, actually, that we felt as young officers that we had to live up to, to be worthy of being part of the regiment. But also in terms of the World Wars, it still staggers me to remind myself that in World War I in 1914, the entire Nepalese army was actually placed at the disposal of the British crown. And more than 90,000 Gurkhas enlisted, of whom 6,300 died in the trenches and elsewhere during the war. And similarly in World War II, they were a huge part of the alliance then. 140,000 men served in battles across the world in every way you can imagine, from the Western Desert, Italy, Malaya, Singapore, and another 9,000 were killed then. They've racked up an impressive 13 Victoria Crosses, and bearing in mind they were only eligible from 1911 to even win them, they'd won 12 by the end of the Second World War, I believe. So um, pretty courageous bunch and incredibly lovely, wonderful people and and amazing soldiers. And it was their 200th anniversary back in 2015. And I I was lucky enough to be part of some of those celebrations in Nepal just before the devastating earthquake. But in that first period of learning to be an officer and learning to lead generally by failing, um, I was, again, pretty lucky to have a lot of opportunities. They were very open to young officers applying for interesting courses to improve their skills and just become more rounded individuals. So I was able to Well, you had to learn Nepali for a start. That was critical to be able to speak the language. We were also trained as parachutists, became a jungle warfare instructor, did my first few deployments, and even managed to be the guard commander at the Tower of London on one stint, praying constantly that nobody tried to steal the crown jewels, because I'd probably get that wrong. But brilliant first three years, and what an introduction to the army and, and the life that would end up playing such a key part in the rest of my experiences. But after a number of years there, I applied to try out to be a helicopter pilot and was selected for pilot training and spent a number of years flying operationally helicopters in a counter-terrorist role before then moving on to spend the rest of my career, a majority of my career in joint and international roles. Applied really or volunteered for everything that I could because it was, for me, life is all about experiences, good or bad. And so I applied for every operation that I could get on really. Uh, By the time I retired, I'd spent about seven years or just shy of seven years on operation and have experienced firsthand my fair share, I guess, of conflict and trauma. I've been shot twice, been involved in a number of explosive incidents and helicopter incidents, and survived a suicide bomber who tried to kill me and my team just for my birthday, actually, a number of years ago. In terms of remembrance, you know, more specifically, and i sadly, I've lost over 60 friends and colleagues during that time who died in combat, and many others who've suffered life-changing injuries, be they mental or physical... So although I have a number of permanent disabilities as well, you know, I really consider mine to be extremely minor in comparison. So uh, I'm very lucky to come out of it as I have. But as is the nature of any high intensity conflict that you will be very familiar with through all your study and experience that most things don't go to plan. In fact, when we make plans for combat and conflict, one of the first things you sort of accept is that the chances of the moment you start doing what it is you're planning to do, it will go wrong or... It won't go to plan, so there's often a lot of luck involved. But apart from wishing we'd been able to bring everybody home safely, I wouldn't change a single experience because I've learned far more from the most challenging times and built resilience in those darkest moments, which makes me appreciate life's positive experiences so much more. I can still run. I can't run as fast as I used to, and I'll blame the injuries, but it's probably because I'm getting older. But you know, I do try and get out most days, even if it's for a short walk or, or run, because I feel I have to out of respect for those who no longer have that choice.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side, helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: I was very lucky in that 22 years that a lot of it was spent internationally with allies and partners, the Americans, NATO, and other coalition elements, as well as some amazing local forces around the world. And I've got some lifelong friends from those times deployed in some of the world's most, let's say, complex and hostile environments. So an incredible time. And I would encourage anybody to, if they have any desire to serve, go and look at the military because you'll have an extremely rewarding and fulfilling time.
2: And I've just got to take you back a second there, Ash, because you've glossed over it really quickly because you're a humble guy, but 22 years of service and seven years of those were on active operations. That has got to be one of the highest numbers I've ever heard.
3: I know people who've done a bit more, but yeah, it's probably on the higher end for some, but a lot of it was luck. You know, I was able to put my name forward for jobs, particularly in some of the parts of Central Asia. There were roles where it was really important to build up the trust and to have the empathy with the people with whom you needed to work locally. They were so fed up of seeing new people coming every six months or 12 months with bright ideas and enthusiasm, well-intentioned enthusiasm, but they were just exhausted from decades of this stuff. So I felt that to be able to make a difference that was going to be potentially, hopefully, enduring and sustainable, that it was the right thing to do to keep asking to go back to some of these places. Once I'd built up the trust and relationships, I was able to achieve far more with them because they knew me rather than starting from afresh.
2: When you were talking about the Gurkhas, you quite rightly, and we've been doing this interestingly frequently on this podcast recently, we've been putting the world back into the world wars and by describing the Gurkhas and well how often they served with the British Army early on, but also in the different theatres around the world, you, of course, are helping us do that as well. But your own service has shown that there is this global aspect to the British experience of war. And so how important is it that we don't just look inwards when we remember war, but we look outwards as we come up to Remembrance Day?
3: Yeah, I think it's really important. It's a great point. During my NATO time, you know, I've had Germans under command. I've had Lithuanians, I've had Australians, Canadians, Brits, Americans. You know, it's a really big team effort, the coalitions that we build now. And the idea when we're thinking about the world wars that not too many decades in the future that Brits would be working hand in glove with Germans would be beyond people's thinking then. But I think if you're a soldier or a, in the military, rather, there is a respect that one has for this type of service. And I know and I absolutely recognize there are many ways to serve, but the military community is one where we would absolutely and we have treated enemy combatants in the same way that you would treat your own. There's a sort of rule of laws of armed conflict is the official term, but there's a humanity and a respect that exists and binds us all really whether you're fighting one minute or trying to save the life of somebody who's been trying to kill you the next. And I think We are stronger as a society by thinking more about those things that connect us than divide us. And the times that I've spent, for example, in places like Afghanistan, where we come from clearly extremely different backgrounds. But there are so many things that actually do unite us as humans. And if we can strip back all of the politics and all those other things, actually, as a society and as a community, there are things that we can find that actually will help us think about peace and a secure and stable future, rather than always looking for the thing that we can disagree with or find to be cause for confrontation or disagreement.
2: Well, no one can question your service, that's for sure. As you say, you've served in counter-terrorism roles. I know lots of other roles that you can't talk about. And you've also even guarded the crown jewels. But your service hasn't stopped, even though your full-time active service career in the military has You're still a reservist and you also work on a number of charities.
3: Yeah, I play a very small part in a a few things. So when I retired, I was very lucky with my transition. I had no problem with it. And while the majority of military veterans transition like me without issue and go on to lead very fulfilling lives, both personally and professionally, there's a minority like in the rest of society that would need more help or do need more help. And so the small minority for whom the mental and physical impacts of that service or the scars of their service that endure, they do need our support. And so I feel, as I mentioned earlier, very lucky that although I have some disabilities, it doesn't affect me day to day. And therefore, for those who are less fortunate, I have a strong desire to do what I can to help them, not just in the UK but beyond. So after I joined the reserves, I looked to see what charities I could work with or be part of that might help, initially just the military veteran community, and was very honoured to be asked to join or support two charities working very hard in this space, namely Combat Stress and Remembered. And again, many of your listeners may be very familiar with both of these, but for those who may not, Combat Stress was actually established just after World War One, So there's a link there which may be of interest. 1919 was its establishment, and it really came into being to help deal with those impacts of World War One, namely the shell shock issue, which clearly we now refer to more commonly as PTSD. And Comet Stress today, you know, has done in its entire history, but today focuses particularly on those with the most complex mental health issues. And so I joined their centenary appeal board for the At Ease Appeal, which aims to raise £10 million by 2022 to help fund the life-changing and often life-saving treatment for those most in need. And the public's been brilliant in supporting us with that, but work does remain for us to reach the target uh, to make sure that people get the treatment they deserve. And Remembered and the Tommy Club, which I'll talk about in a second. So Remembered, many of your listeners may not have heard of the charity itself or perhaps their 2018 campaign, which was called There But Not There, but you may well have seen Tommy figures popping up around the UK and actually more broadly in the world. They got as far afield as Canada and Australia. And that was a campaign that was set up to mark the centenary of the end of World War One, and the aim of using the Tommy was to try and bring the names of the 888,246, the number of all those killed in World War One, was to take those names off all the memorial walls that exist in villages and towns around the country and try and bring them alive a little bit and bring them into the public space and schools to remind everybody of the impact of that particular war and to the point we discussed earlier about how it affected the wider community. And so it represented not only those that were lost in combat and sacrificed their lives, but also the UK's ongoing desire to support those who returned home. And so the Tommies themselves were made by veterans and disabled employees at the Royal British Legion Industries, or RBLI, and we sold hundreds of thousands, which was amazing, both large and small. And also requested of us were over 90,000 schools packs where different schools asked us to produce and send them education packs, basically to enable children of all ages to conduct their own projects and start doing their own research into their local World War I names. So tales of quite young children going en masse to the local war memorial, picking a name and being tasked to go and find out on either Google or in the library or in whatever form, the story that goes with Private Jones, who died at age 17 in Flanders Fields or whoever it might be. And we were sent some incredible projects where it had clearly captured the interest and imagination of these children. So in terms of my first, very first point about education and commemoration, I think I'm encouraged to see that the younger generation is indeed seemingly interested in learning about the past. And it's not just all TikTok and Snapchat and everything else that I would struggle to probably operate myself. In addition to their campaign in 2019, we had a D-Day 75 campaign, which used boot prints in the sand, which also captured people's imagination. And then just a few weeks ago, on the 13th of October, RBLI launched a new initiative called the Tommy Club, which I'm thrilled to be a founding patron of. And the intent for this club is to become a hub of communal activity where people can come together in remembrance of those that gave their lives, but also to educate people on the stories of conflicts gone by and hopefully all conflicts gone by not just the more iconic ones and serve as an inspiration for the support of veterans by encouraging fundraising and other activities so I'm really excited by this because it's a new thing that everybody can get behind and and it's going to be educational as well as doing real good and helping those who need it.
2: 80 or 90,000 packs for schools is astonishing isn't it? Is it really important to you that we do make sure that the younger generation remember our past wars, but also the wars that we continue to fight in around the world?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I've got a young daughter who lives in Australia, and we've visited the Australian War Memorial many times, and I've explained what the poppy means. And she's gone around, and and we've done the last post ceremony, and she's really, really interested to understand why, clearly in an age-appropriate way, but to understand and when I explained some of the conflicts that I've been involved in, and she just said, well, why? Why did they have to fight about that? Why couldn't they just talk and come to an agreement? It's like, yep, yeah, absolutely. Children actually are far more um, astute at sort of identifying how silly we can be as adults and are far more open to other options other than resorting to conflict, perhaps as the last resort so quickly. But I think they are the next generation. They're the future. And there are many very young adults who are serving today, not just for the UK, but internationally. All of our allies have hundreds of thousands of people serving every day of the year on overseas operations. And I think we should always spare a thought for them, not just on Remembrance or Veterans Day, but every day.
2: I'm sure that your daughter is a driving reason behind this, but so many veterans that I know from my generation want to leave the war behind them and any association with war and the military. It's difficult. But why have you maintained this connection? Why have you done this work with the charities that you do? Well,
3: I'm proud of the work that I did. I mean, I only played a small part and hopefully made a meaningful difference even if it's a small difference as part of a much bigger team but I think that given that service and how many years of my life I gave to serving in the army particularly around the world that I feel very lucky and and want to say thank you and give back in some way to those who are either still serving or maybe less fortunate than me to have come out of it relatively unscathed. Nobody that I have served with ever Put themselves willingly in harm's way for fame or fortune. We did it. All of them did it because we believe in something bigger than ourselves. The team is always more important than you as an individual. And they wanted to make a difference, fully aware that there was a chance that by doing those kind of roles that they might pay the ultimate price. And I think therefore, given that they they are willing to risk everything for us, that we as a society owe it to them to be there in their hour of need should it arise. Remembrance clearly is emotional time for many and, and I do recognize there are very many veterans for whom it's not a time to to think about or remember what went went on that has affected them and I that's because everybody has a different experience clearly. You know, for me it is an emotional time hearing the last post, regardless whether it's on TV in person or wherever I hear it, whenever I hear it, I immediately get goosebumps as I'm reminded of of all those people and all those places that I've served who we've had to say goodbye to, you know, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and and many civilians in some instances. Examples being perhaps seeing 19 US flag draped coffins or caskets in the back of an airplane, waiting to fly home to their families, you know, one year or witnessing colleagues being shot within only a couple of feet of me, or carrying out the grim task of collecting body parts of a local soldier after he was killed or blown up in front of me, just to make sure that his family had something to bury are are images that are still fresh in mind. And thankfully for me, I can talk about them and think about them without them impacting me in a way that is really damaging. But it's something that I actively think about and want to remember. I don't want to forget those feelings and emotions and, and images because that is how I remember and am able to sort of learn from my experience, I guess, and think about the families and loved ones in the two minute silence or when the last post is sounding who weren't lucky enough to welcome their loved one home.
2: And that's the core point, isn't it? Remembering isn't about glorifying. It's about ensuring that we don't forget. And we don't forget those who have served so that they can get the support that they need. And with that in mind, Ash, what projects are next for you?
3: Well, I I like collecting projects. I like doing doing a few things at, at a time. So there's a couple of things that I'm working on in addition to the charities and other business stuff. So I'm trying to write a book. Um, And maybe this is perhaps my own way of remembering, I haven't thought too deeply about it, but I'm aiming to capture some of those feelings and emotions experienced during combat and other life experiences actually that have challenged me, you know, and the sort of things that most people experience when they're trying to find purpose in life, however that might be, who knows if it'll ever be worthy of being printed, but if it has a chance of helping anyone, even just, you know, something for my daughter to read, but if it can motivate or inspire others to think either differently or more positively, perhaps about how one can build resilience or overcome adversity, and maybe, and ideally also continue to encourage the conversation about mental health and well-being, then that will be worth doing and it'll be worth the effort. The other main thing that I'm trying to do is set up a global foundation, or I'm setting up a global foundation called the Unsung Foundation. And again, really driven mainly by my own experience, I guess that I believe strongly that trauma does not discriminate. And I think we've seen that, not least in this year. But it doesn't discriminate between service, your colour of uniform, your nationality, the language you might speak, your gender orientation. You know, trauma is trauma and service is service in my mind. You know, I'm very lucky to have been put back together by very clever doctors and nurses and i know plenty of friends who've relied on the firefighters when they need to be cut out of car crashes and this sort of thing and people often and always rely on the police for counterterrorism terrorism and, and always other things so we want to grow a global community to support all veterans of service and think much more holistically in a community way about and inclusively really about those who serve so the group that we want to support includes the military firefighters doctors nurses paramedics law enforcement and rescue services to raise awareness about those who may be suffering as a result of their service, you know, mental or physical impacts. And we recognise there are many, many different ways to serve. And I think during COVID, we've seen how brilliantly communities have come together to try and help and support and you know, arguably serve their communities. And that's really powerful. So although we started planning for the Unsung Foundation well before COVID or the bushfires or wildfires in Australia or California, these crises have really just served to reinforce why it is important to think inclusively and in much more of a community way about service, I think. And this is a group on whom we rely when we need them, but quite often we never give them a thought until we actually do need them. And I think that really should change. Now, the COVID has impacted us (laughs) frustratingly. We had planned in year one to host a number of internationally connected concerts. Um, We're going to have to focus instead in year one on telling the stories and building out the content taking unsung stories from around the world and producing a feature-length documentary a book and a number of short films uh, as well as building out a community platform to connect people so they can start to support each other in a more cohesive way if people are interested in that concept then we'd love people to get in touch you can find us at unsung global or via the web page it's just a holding page at the moment but unsungfoundation.org so those are the two main things that are keeping me
2: busy I've read a draft chapter of your book, Ash, and I can say that you do not pull any punches. It's pretty honest stuff about what it's like to be in a war zone and what it's like to serve. So I look forward to reading that whole book when it comes out. But most importantly, to finish on, is there any way in which our listeners can donate to any of your foundations?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the Tommy Club is a great way, I think, for people to get involved, you know, particularly in light of this particular podcast and the theme of remembering all wars, really. I know it's titled World Wars, but to our earlier conversation, there are many conflicts that we have perhaps less awareness of. And therefore, the Tommy Club, one of its aims is to educate as well as support those who need it. So if people are able to and recognize this is a really tough time for everybody, so please do not feel obliged. But if anybody has five pounds that they would be willing to spare then please text, if you're in the UK, text TOMMY5 to 70460. Texts cost one standard rate message plus your donation and you'll be opting in to hear about RBI's work and fundraising efforts via telephone and SMS. If you'd like to give £5 pounds but do not wish to receive those communications, you can also text Tommy TOMMYNOINFO5 to the same number, 70460, or please visit tommyclub.co.uk and join the club. It's a great team to be part of and we look forward to welcoming any new members.
2: Well, Ash, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and for reminding us about just why we remember.
3: No, thank you for having me. I feel very honoured to have been part of this as an enthusiastic amateur.
2: Thanks, Ash.